Well, welcome into another edition of the Roaring Twenties podcast, examining the people and the places that have shaped the first 19 seasons of Royals history as we head into 2020-2021, expected to be one of the best seasons in Royals history, the 20th anniversary season of hockey in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Coming up on this episode, we're pleased to be joined by a man who's become a friend of not only the Royals players, coaches over the last 10 years, but a personal friend, Jason Garente, a 10-year writer for the Reading Eagle, and he's helped cover some of the best stories of Royals hockey, getting a behind-the-scenes look at what has driven the Royals to success over his time. Reading has made the playoffs nine of the 10 seasons that Jason has covered the team and 10 of 11 overall. Jason started covering the team right at the start of the Larry Corville era. Larry took over midway through 08-09, and 09-10 was his first year, and Jason joined the Reading Eagle in January of 2010. His first full season covering the Royals was in 2010, and he covered the team as well during, of course, the 2013 championship season. And I think what's just most interesting about getting to know Jason and chatting with him about a, a variety of topics is that oftentimes when we have a chance to chat with him before a game, after a game, is he looks at things in a different perspective than the common fan or even the common broadcaster. His mind works in a way that is very unique and it brings a lot of interesting opinions to the table. And I think if you stick around and listen to a few minutes of Jason, or we hope you stick around and listen to the whole thing, you're going to start to hear what we mean by that. And he'll bring up different perspectives of his 10 years covering Royals hockey and just how special this team is to the community that maybe some of us haven't thought of. And I think that'll be pretty present here. So let's get going with Jason. We're here on another edition of the Roaring Twenties podcast. Our guest today has covered the Reading Royals for 10 seasons. Jason Garente of the Reading Eagle newspaper. Jason, it's wonderful to have you on. Uh, I'll ask you this. You've covered the team for uh, so long, and you've covered Berks County for so long. So what's it like for you on an average Friday or Saturday night, the excitement that even you have still coming to the arena uh, in downtown Reading, walking up from the Eagle to uh, put together a game story and be a part of the experience? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you, you realize how fun it is right now because there's, nothing going on and there's kind of like this void in your life you're used to being in you know buildings with crowds and excitement and you kind of miss it because you're stuck in your house these days but my favorite part of covering a Royals game is I always walk to the office and back it's about four blocks and it's always after I do my interviews to walk back to the office and I mentally sort of go through what I'm going to write about in my story in my head. So then when I actually sit down at the computer, I have like the first eight inches or so of the story written in my head. And it's always fun when you're, you're doing that walk and you realize like you have something pretty good and you like, you can't wait to sort of get in front of the computer and type it out. I wanted to talk to you about that specific part. Uh, one of the topics that uh, we'll discuss just a little bit later, but uh, give us your background. How the, how the heck did you get to Berks County to uh, start covering the Royals for the Reading Eagle and covering other Berks County sports? Well, I grew up in Westchester, which is southeastern PA, and I moved to Lancaster, which is where I still live, in 2002, and I worked for the Lancaster newspapers, and I got laid off in 2009 when the last financial collapse hit, and like it was just a terrible time, and jobs were being uh, lost everywhere, and then I got hired in Reading in 2010, and I actually asked 
for the Royals beat because our beat writer, a guy named Jimmy Johnson, who people who follow the team might remember, he covered the team for one, maybe one and a half seasons. He had left the paper and the beat was open. So between the time I got there and the 2010-11 season, I asked if I could cover it because I enjoyed covering a professional team and you can sort of write about it in a different way than you do high schools. And they gave it to me and that was Larry Corville's second full season. And uh, they were very good that year. They had around 93 points. They made the second round of the playoffs, but that was my first year covering them. When you stepped into the Santander Arena uh, for the first time to cover a game, first of all, I'll ask you, remember what game it was, what happened back in 2010-2011? Uh, it was a preseason game. It was that, you know, the annual one preseason home game. And I knew nothing. I mean, I had no I had very little minor league hockey knowledge, and I had zero Reading Royals knowledge. The guys who were in the game aren't even going to be on the team. And they didn't have nameplates on their backs for that game. And like, I, I was just like completely overwhelmed. I had to try to figure out like what was happening. And I think uh, a guy named John Scrimgeour, people will remember him. He's a pretty popular sort of third-line role player. He might have had a goal in that game. And he was on the bubble to make the roster. And I wrote a story about how maybe this is this will put John Scrimgeour on the roster. And he wound up making it. He played a fairly significant role throughout the season. But I remember just like I felt like someone had thrown me into the water and I had to figure out how to swim. Like I just was completely lost and had to learn every little intricacy of the ECHL as I went along. And now I would say that you're one of the more respected uh, beat writers in the league for anyone that's not read Jason. Uh, I mean, you can go follow him on Twitter again, twitter.com slash Jason Garente is also, you know, obviously the articles on the Reading Eagle, but your approach to writing really intrigues me. And I think it what it's what uh, uh, separates you from, you know, if we're playing another team in the North division or just another team in the league, very often what the you know, broadcasters, media relations, sometimes even the you know players and coaches, they might go and see an article that was tweeted by one of their, you know, newspaper writers that covers another team. But how would you describe what you're trying to bring to the table in terms of your storytelling on a, you know, a game by game and, you know, beat by beat sort of, uh, uh, you know, day by day role there? Well, the things I cover generally don't have a huge audience, like a major flyers. You're going to get, you know, tons of clicks just because there's so many people who are interested in the flyers. But the audience for the things I write is a lot smaller. So I operate with the presumption that most people reading my story have a fundamental understanding of what happened in the game. They care a lot about the Royals. Uh, you know, they may have been there. They listened to it on the radio or whatever. So I operate on the premise of my college professor always used to say is tell me something I can I try to build the story around one or two of those types of things. Yeah, like earlier this season when you're writing a story about, you know, it could be a story about Marley Quince who was a bubble player for the Royals ended up being traded, but it sort of seems like you're you're telling it not only through the players' eyes about the struggles that they they might Jason for lack of a better way of saying it, the ECHL tends to be one of the the harder leagues to get a grasp on from a team perspective the players are already are always uh, uh, changing it seems like it's very you know there's 50 players a, a season whereas the NHL they might have that 
that same number of players, but the difference is is that it's all guys that are being fed up from the American Hockey League, whereas the ECHL sometimes you're grasping in multiple different directions and you're, the travel's obviously more difficult than the AHL or the NHL. So how do you keep that in mind when you're putting together your stories? I, I think that actually makes it easier because – most of them have been through some kind of adversity or some kind of struggle. Like they haven't just been the best player all the way through the ranks. Like they've had to latch on somewhere or they've had to make a cut or something along those lines. And, and the other thing is that how many people really know Marley Quince's story? Whereas if you compare that to a great NHL player, most fans know everything about the NHL players. I see it as an opportunity to tell something, tell people about someone that they otherwise would have no idea about. They wouldn't know that he played on a frozen pond in his, you know, the backyard that was built by his father, and he put out brush fires and his some for his summer job. I mean, to me, that's all new information that you can share with people, and that that's the exciting part. It goes back to tell people something that they otherwise would never have found out. Again, Jason Garente with us, ten years covering the Royals as a beat reporter and uh, was talking with Pat Richards um, on our first episode of the podcast. And we were talking a little bit after I said, you know, we're going to have Jason on uh, eventually. So we're glad to have you on. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Pat had remarked on was the way that you are able to uh, uh, get the feel for a coach. Now you covered Kirk McDonald as a player, and you covered Larry Corville for a number of years, but what are some of the similarities that you see that is that Kirk has brought to the table through his first three years as head coach that maybe reminds you of Larry a little bit? And then I'll say, what doesn't remind you of Larry in the same vein? Well, in terms of their approaches to actually coaching the team, I think they're very similar. I, I mean, Kirk is sort of a – Larry had, had this way of finding little cracks in the system and ways to get players, you know, like he would – pull off a trade for some star guy who was unhappy in another location and he would get him for a song and then he would come to Reading and he would be a star for Reading. And Larry had a way of finding out those players that were available, getting them into the team and, and then they would flourish here. And Kirk is, I mean, you, you've seen the last few years, he has pulled that off several times and just the, the relentless work ethic and always trying to find an angle to get, a player here because it isn't an automatic fit like a place like Florida or some or Toledo or some of the more attractive uh, ECHL cities to play in. And they, he just, he, I think being Larry's assistant, Kirk picked up on all those little ways that he could bolster the roster. And then uh, the one way they're different, I think is Kirk is very focused on making what he has better. Whereas Larry was always looking for, the next really good player that he could add to the roster. And I think some of that is because it's, it's different now in the sense that rosters stay together more. And like the Royals had mostly, I mean, barring injuries, they had a lot of the same core. Whereas in Larry's early days, you might have guys off the street. You might have, you know, guys who just weren't good enough to play at this level. So he was always looking to add as much talent as possible to um, bolster his roster so that when he lost talent, he would still have enough of a foundation to keep winning. Um, but in terms of personality, they are completely different. They are night and day. <laughs> there's, there's really nothing uh, like them at all. Kirk is much more uh, joking and outgoing, and he'll kid around with you, where Larry, with his dealings with me, were always dead serious. 
When you step into a you know a post game situation at the wonderful media room in Santander Arena that we have set up, uh, I what strikes me is that when you are you know you're getting ready to chat with a guy that you read them very well beforehand whether or not that you know they might want to talk to you for a few minutes or maybe they're just ready to go into whatever they want to say about whatever especially when it comes to uh, uh, dealing with you know hockey operations staff like like Kirk or like you know assistant coach Nick Luco how do you read that and what past experience informed how you're able to read a guy coming into the room uh, in that type of sense yeah, I mean, it's like any interaction with a person in day-to-day life. You can kind of feel when they're friendly and may feel like talking to you, and you can feel when maybe they don't. It's That's just something you pick up in life. But for me, the, the interview is everything. Like, I'm, the only way I'm going to find out any kind of details is if I can get this person, who I've never met before half the time, to tell me something about themselves. So I try... I don't worry about asking a dumb question. I don't worry about phrasing everything perfectly. I just try to make it sort of a back and forth interaction so that the person I'm talking to forgets that it's an interview and just talks to you like you would, you know, if someone's sort of peppering you with questions about your personality in a, in a you know, conversational manner, then you might just start talking and you won't even think about the fact that it's a newspaper and it's a story that's going to be public and you just, you might tell stories and anecdotes and funny things that you can use in there. That's what I try to get out of people when I interview them. Let's chat a lot of, a little bit about this past season's Royals team. Uh, in my mind, one of the great one ifs, uh, what ifs, and you had tweeted this the other day, and Pat and I certainly agreed when we were chatting. Is you know what's the it could be one of the greatest what ifs if the Royals had met the Newfoundland Growlers in the second round. But this was a Royals team that really found its groove in November. Uh, December evened out a little bit with a lot of call-ups and injuries. Ralph Kademi had been called up uh, at the time, took the team maybe a little bit to figure out uh, how to roll with that. Garrett Mitchell went up and down and then back up, uh, eventually settling with Rockford before the ECHL season was uh, postponed and eventually uh, uh, canceled a couple days later. But uh, what struck you about this Royals team at success level and what impressed you about it? I mean, they were just, for the last, whatever, two months before play stopped, they were arguably the best team in the ECHL. I mean, they were they were at, at, a high, at the highest level, as high as a level as the 12-13 ever played for a 25-game stretch. And and I, it's starting to hit me now as time has passed and we're getting farther away from the season, just what a loss this was for the fans and for the franchise. It just I thought back, like, what if in 12-13 – you know, they had this great team, and then on March 15th or whatever, we, we all said, you know what, we're not going to play the playoffs this year. Think about all the memories we would have lost and all the stories that we tell so constantly. We wouldn't have those, and I think this team lost the possibility for that same thing. And, you know, I mean, there, there are more important things in the world right now. People are suffering, but from a sports perspective, that's, you know, that's a, a huge disappointment. One of the characteristics that struck me, and uh, by the way, I agree with you that it's sort of, you know, it's hard to feel the type of sting of a playoff series loss, but you feel like it, it's almost like a, a wistfulness for what could have been, even though you never got a chance to fully experience what it could have been. But uh, one of the things that made this team so great was the depth and 
I think we learned just how strong it was <laughs> probably about beginning of February, late January. That carried through February and into March, where even though Ralph Kademi, who was the league's leading goal scorer, was lost for the season due to injury, but Trevor Gooch had come back from injury. Matthew Goudreau came back. He was injured, but probably would have been back at some point, hopefully around the first round of the playoffs. Uh, Garrett Mitchell was going to be coming back. There was even a thought that Kirill Ustamenko might be back for the playoffs, and it could be a combination, two of the three, of McCollum, Ustamenko, Sandstrom. And it really it made me appreciate just how great of a job Kirk McDonald, Nick Luco did in finding, identifying, developing, like we were talking about earlier, the players that could have positioned this team for a deep playoff run and maybe seeing the Growlers later on. Well, you look, how many forwards played 50 games for the Royals? It's Dechara, Corey Mack, and Braden Lowe. That's it. You know, so, I mean, they were shuffling guys in and out constantly. And, you know, guys like Goudreau, who missed a lot of time, Trevor Yates missed a lot of time, and then the shuttle back and forth to Lehigh Valley, they really never had the the top 10 to 12 that you would expect them to have for the playoffs even when they were sort of stomping through the league for the last two months, which makes that uh, that possibility of what if they had all gotten together at the end and put the best roster on the ice, what could that have been? And that just makes that feeling even worse. Like we were saying, that team that went down to Wheeling for the, what turned out to be the last game was not like a fully put-together team, and they just blew the doors off the nailers who were, you know, thinking about the end of the season. It just showed you how, how the depth of talent that you were talking about. I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, I, I sort of was reflecting on that day and have reflected on it, that there was a sense of inevi inevitability that something was going to happen in the world and in the sports world in the next few days. But uh, stepping away from maybe the Royals a little bit, and, and include them in your answer, but uh, this has really affected your job as well. Yeah, for the players, there's the longing of a potential playoff run that was lost and for the coaches, the same thing. And for the front office, and we've seen, you know, number of hockey front offices uh, uh, suffer a little bit. But you lost all these teams that you were covering. So how are you doing with all the stories that you were working on and teams you were covering, spring sports of high school, et cetera, being lost? Yeah, it's a, it's a worrisome time because this the economic downturn is not going to be good for newspapers. I mean, that's inevitable. And being a sports writer is not a great thing to be when there are no sports happening. So, um, you know, sports are like this communal thing where we all get together in a big building and we all root for the same result and we're either happy or sad, depending on that result. And sports writing is a connection to that. And now all of a sudden there are no wins and losses and there are no emotions and you're trying to find things to write about. And, you know, I'm going, I'm sending out, you know, a half dozen emails and texts a day and whoever I can get to get back to me, I'm trying to figure out what I can turn into a story. And if you pursue 10 stories, maybe two or three of them actually pan out, but it doesn't really feel like sports writing because you're not in a building and you're not watching something happen. You know, it feels more like you're writing a, like a book report or, you know, a research project and you're typing it out on your computer in your, your home office. It's just not the same experience at all. What do you think of the way all these sports shows like ESPN, NBC Sports are quarantined at home, which is the right thing to do, but they're still kind of trudging on and trying to make a 24-hour news cycle of sports when 
in reality, there's maybe a 30-minute news cycle nowadays, if that, of sports. And the only reason for that is the NFL's going on like business as usual. Yeah, the other thing is that I don't think people's minds are really focused on sports right now. I think people are worried about other things, and rightfully so, and whether they're going to have their job when this is over, whether their family's going to be healthy. So it's kind of hard to put a run-of-the-mill sports story in front of someone and say, hey, read this. This is important right now because obviously there are more important things. So that's the other thing you kind of wrestle with. Like, do I treat this sports event like or sports coverage like it's the same as always? Or how do I do I write it differently because of the times we're living through right now? And I, I figure you write it like a regular sports story. And if a couple hundred people get a two minute escape from whatever their day to day lives are like right now, you know, then that's worth it. Yeah, it's actually funny you say that right as we were starting to talk, I uh, got an email from a longtime season ticket holder. Uh, we had put the uh, third period and the eventual celebration with the broadcast on BCTV on uh, on Facebook. They have, a, you know, like Facebook watch parties and you can like premiere a video like you're watching it in a movie theater except on your computer at home by yourself. And uh, one of the season ticket holders reached out and said, I don't have Facebook, but if you could get this on YouTube, that'll bring some happiness while we're stuck in the house. And I think that's kind of the role of what we're trying to to do Jason is you know I, I said the comfort food analogy might be maybe what everyone's just kind of looking for something to escape even if it's only for 30 minutes or an hour uh, a day at this point yeah, that's the one thing that's different from this than other sort of crises that I've lived through like even September 11th the sports world shut down for a week but then it came back and it was very emotional and we, we had a different perspective because of all we had been through, but there was that sort of release of being back at sporting events and watching the games on TV again. And we don't have that now. It's, it's the only, there's never been a time like this where the whole sports world has stopped for such a long period. Where were you when you found out the ECHL, NHL, AHL, whatever, that day after the Rudy Gobert thing happened and the NBA suspended? And what were you thinking when you see, you know, the NHL is postponing AHL and ECHL? Yeah, I had a game that night. I was in Pottstown. I drove to a girls' basketball game, and I sat in an arena, and you know, a, a super crowded gym where, you know, probably 1,500 people cycled in and out for all the games that were played. And I covered it like it was any other day. That was a Wednesday. And I came back to the office and the TV was on. And that's when all this stuff was happening in the NBA. And that's when I thought to myself, like, the world's about to be very different. You know, and, and things were I, – I didn't know how long it was going to last, but I knew that the next few weeks were not going to be normal. But until that point, my coverage and my sort of lifestyle as a sports person had not changed at all. I still – I covered a game that very day. Let's go and talk about some of these past Royals teams. When you joined the Royals and or when you joined the Reading Eagle to cover the Royals in 2010-11, uh, Andrew Sauer was the leading scorer that season. Chris Blight, second leading scorer. Old Benny Gordon and Ryan Crothers. It was a pretty uh, – uh, Olivier LaBelle was on that team, 21 goals that year in 38 games. Uh, goaltenders that season for the Royals. Matt Dalton, Mike Hutchinson, Ben Scrivens were the main three uh, – what was it like covering that team now with the perspective 10 years later that a lot of those guys are some of the most famous that have ever donned the uniform for the Royals? Yeah, they followed a, a, a similar path in which they started kind of slow. They were 
500 through maybe 16 games or so. And then they went on an absolute tear through about, um, you know, about a two month period where they shot to the first place in the division ahead of um, Elmira was their big rival that year. Elmira had a really good team. Uh, but the first inter first Royals interview I ever did was with Ben Scrivens, who turned out to be an NHL player. And you kind of knew if you had watched him, even at the beginning of that season, he was destined to play in the NHL. And like, I knew nothing. I, I, I was completely uh, overmatched and he's kind of a gruff guy to interview. If, if you ever watch his future interviews, he's kind of hard on reporters, but he was as nice as could be that day. And we talked about how he was an undrafted guy and he, he, I think he thought he was better than ECHL and he should have been in the AHL. And then he played about 13 games for the Royals that year. And I don't, he, he kind of gets lost in team history because he wasn't here that long, but he had a 938 save percentage and uh, he won 10 of the 13 games and the Royals were not as strong a defensive team. They were much more of an up and down team. They would give up 40 shots fairly routinely back then. They were not nearly as disciplined and the goaltending that year, year just elevated. I mean, they had Ben Scrivens, Matt Dalton and Michael Hutchinson, another guy who had a fairly, he's had a fairly long NHL career and they did their goaltending was just extraordinary and it just carried them through the regular season. And they, we thought that they could make a run at the Stanley at the Stanley at the Kelly Cup that year, but they kind of fizzled at the end, and then they got swept by Kalamazoo in the second round. The next year, the Royals lost in the first round, 2011-2012. Team had 80 points. That was the uh, miracle run at the end. So uh, for those that don't know, the Royals came down to the wire. They needed to have a strong finish and get some help on the final day of the season. Uh, what were you doing when uh, the Steve Martinson coach Chicago Express ended up losing? I think it was to the, oh my goodness, was it to the Cincinnati Cyclones and that put the Royals in the playoffs, if I'm remembering it correct? Yeah, the Royals finished 5-0-1 that year and they won and they didn't know if they were in the playoffs until the result of that Chicago-Cincinnati game, which was still going. So everyone was in uh, the coach's office and there was a laptop on the desk and the game was on the T on the laptop and people were crowded around. Players were still in their uniforms and skates and they were watching the game. I think it just had to get to overtime, I believe. And the Royals would clinch. And the, one of the teams didn't know that they thought they were still playing to win and they couldn't, they didn't realize they'd been eliminated. So they pulled their goalie. And so they played without a goalie in a tie game for like the last two minutes of regulation and if the goal, if the other, if Cincinnati had scored, it would have eliminated the Royals from the playoffs, but somehow they couldn't score in the empty net. And then once it got to overtime, the Royals had realized they clinched and it was just surreal. Like it was such a bizarre set of circumstances. And that, that was probably the worst Royals team of the last 11 years. They had a lot of turnover and, and Larry Corville basically reinvented the team in early March with a whole bunch of trade deadline moves and just kind of threw this hodgepodge together and they went something like eight three and one down the stretch and they got 80 points or 82 points and they got in on the last day yeah looking at the roster here they had Mikhail but uh, Michael Bedard picked up in the last few weeks of the season uh, he ended up playing 20 where's the number here 26 games 23 points that was the year that uh, and the last time that a Royals player recorded a hat trick to win a fan, uh, $10,000, which is a promotion the Royals sort of were extending this year to win a car. And Steven Swavely came pretty close back on New Year's Eve. But you're right about that team. A lot of 
38, 35, 34 games played, which is pretty typical in the ECHL. But uh, that team had Marco Wuya, and he had a 55-save performance against the Wheeling Nailers, and he did that twice. But Awuya is one of the more colorful personalities ever to play for the Royals uh, because of his rap videos and et cetera. I mean, what did you take away from uh, the, getting a chance to cover a guy like Marco Wuya? It was impossible to write a story about Marco Wuya. It could not be done. If you interviewed him, the answers, just it's like they were from outer space. They didn't, I mean, there would be like six words and they wouldn't necessarily tie into the question. I remember I interviewed him for something like seven and a half minutes one time. And it was just me kind of throwing questions at him and him throwing answers back at me. And when I sat down to listen to it, like there was nothing there that could be formulated into any kind of story. He was just an eccentric guy, and uh, but he was phenomenal. Like that, that was one of the, another one of the underrated uh, performances. He had a 9.30 save percentage for that team. He won 16 games. He was 16-5 and three, and the Royals were. I mean, they had a much they had a losing record when he wasn't in net. So like, if they didn't have him, they were they were a bad team. And uh, he really lifted them. They would not have made the playoffs without him. No question about it. And the Royals started. They they were ahead of Elmira 2-0 in the first round of the playoffs that season as the eighth seed. And then they lost the last three. It was the best of five back then. And they lost the last three and they got eliminated. Royals that year also picked up from the Alaska Aces for a late season run, a defenseman that became a real, or a beg your pardon, a winger uh, that became a, a pretty huge fan favorite. Uh, Ethan Cox, who was a member of the 12, 13 championship team the next year, uh, I know he's one of the more interesting players you've ever had a chance to uh, cover and being a fan favorite, certainly one of those things. How would you describe uh, getting a chance to watch and also cover uh, Royals forward Ethan Cox? Uh, he was the best defensive forward maybe that they've had in the last decade. Great penalty killer, great third-line guy, great teammate. I mean, he would have been the captain of that team if it didn't have Tifu before he arrived. Uh, he would have been the captain of the Kelly Cup team. Uh, they traded uh, Ryan Crothers for him in early March of the 2011-12 uh, season because Crothers wasn't happy here, and Crothers went to Alaska and had a chance to make a run at the Kelly Cup there. And, you know, that kind of showed where that season was headed. Like, the captain gets traded in early March. The people weren't happy. The team wasn't winning. And then Cox showed up, and they went on a great run to end that season, and they squeaked into the playoffs. But then the next year they had 99 points the Kelly cup year and the year after that, they had 96 points. They won 46 games two years in a row. And if you look at the record that the Royals had when Ethan Cox was in the lineup, like, I mean, it's not all him obviously, but they were an extraordinary team. They were the best team in the ECHL for the two years that he was here. How similar for a, a fan that might, you know, be a little bit newer to the Royals as a defensive forward, might he remind you to a guy like, you know, how Steven Swavely affects the game on both ends. Yeah, he wasn't the offensive player that Swayze is. Swayze could score more. Cox had some potential. Like, he could put in maybe 13, 15 goals. He was a monster scorer at the junior level, but he was much more of a defensive presence, and he didn't uh, he didn't provide the same kind of offense that Swayze did. But he was also a smaller guy. He wasn't as physical as some of the other, uh, like an Ian O'Connor, who was another great defensive forward as he was, or even um, his name's escaping me now, but they had another great uh, – defensive forward on the Kelly Cup team but uh yeah he was he was a terrific player though and he just like he never made a mistake he was always behind the puck and 
and he was just a great leader. And he was always the guy that when things were going lousy, he would come into the room and he would say the right things. And he was just an instrumental part of their success. That was one of the best trades Larry Corville ever made. I think he would say that. The next year, arguably the most important goaltender pickup in Royals history was made from uh, Pensacola of the SPHL when the Royals had the chance to acquire Riley Gill. Uh, and he was brought in and he started his first game down in Florida, earned a victory in that. What was the first story that you wrote about Riley Gill joining the Reading Royals or his personality uh, uh, profile with the Royals, I should say? The first memory of Gill was Larry Corville never told me anything unless I asked him a question about it. So if he acquired a player and I would see it on transactions and I would ask him and he would tell me about the player and his thought process behind getting that player. And Larry, the only time he, he texted me unprovoked to tell me that he traded for Riley Gill. And he had never done that before and he never did it since. And I think the reason why is that was a powerhouse team and they were in trouble at that time with goaltenders and they had to figure it out and they weren't going to get any help from within the organization. And they had lost, they had picked up someone named Drew McIntyre, who was an NHL goalie who played 10 games here. And then he went back to the AHL and the NHL. They thought he would be the answer, but they lost him. And then they were kind of scrambling and they didn't have a solution. And it looked like this incredible season where they started with Grubauer and they were going to win the whole thing could be derailed because they didn't have a goalie. And then when he pulled off that move to get Gill, I think Larry realized that he had, he didn't need a superstar, although Gill played at that level for the next few months, but he had a guy who was good enough to win the whole thing. And I think there was a sense of relief about that. Like they had, they had put the, uh, you know, the train back on the tracks and now they could focus on trying to win the championship. And that was, I mean, that's one of the most significant moves in terms of winning a championship in the history of the league. Because, I mean, they don't win the championship if they don't get Riley Gill. And the Allen Americans may have never discovered just how good Riley Gill was. Uh, beg your pardon, too. It was Gill coming from the Louisiana Ice Gators was the team in the SPHL uh, that he came from, not Pensacola. But, I mean, when he joins the team, you said it ends up saving the season. And you get that text from Larry. What were you doing at the time, if you remember, when you received the text? It was like 8.30 at night, and I was in my house, and I, he said, we got, I, and I, I never asked him about it. I wonder if he sent it to the wrong person or something. <laughs> I wrote back, I was like, is this, is this for publication? And he was like, yeah, he's like, I don't care. Yeah, we got him, you know, and I was thinking, he must be really excited, because they had, the, the affiliation was with Hershey at the time, and they had lost Grubauer after the lockout ended, and they had Brandon Anderson, who was a first-year pro, who had left the team for about six weeks because, for personal reasons, and then came back. And he just was not ready to, you know, anchor a Kelly Cub run. And then they had another goalie named Sergei Kostenko, who played like eight games or something that year. And I don't believe he ever played in North America after that. And that was it. And, you know, and this was February. So we had two months until the playoffs started. So it was getting close to desperation time where they had to come up with a solution. And it's not like you can just snap your fingers and get a goalie of that caliber. So, and that was one of the real outside the box type of thinking, um, you know, the kind of thought that he put into Roddick, always trying to find the next great player. That was one of the cases where it really paid off for him. 
but you got banned from practice? You were texting me this and said it's good podcast material, so I've opened the, the box on this. Something about O'Reilly Gill – I'll let you tell the story. Something about Riley Gill got you banned from practice for a time? No, no everyone was banned from practice. This, it, before the playoffs started in 12 13, uh, Mark Thompson sent out an email to the generic emails that you guys send out saying that media members are not allowed to attend practice. And this was the week between the end of the regular season and the start of playoffs. And I guess out of arrogance, I assume that did not apply to me. <laughs> because I was literally the only person who covered the team. Like, so I assume that was something that he sent out just to keep a whole bunch of new people from showing up because the Royals were really good. And there was some buzz about whether they go in the championship. And I guess he didn't want the distraction of a whole bunch of different media outlets showing up. That was what I thought at the time. I had assumed that if they had banned me from practice, they would have interacted with me personally and said, you're not allowed to show up. So I showed up for practice like I would between regular season and playoffs like I do every year. And I was greeted at the door by security and told I wasn't allowed in the building. And then Mark Thompson comes down and tells me, like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be at practice. And I was just like flabbergasted by the whole thing. And, you know, it just didn't make any sense. And then he walked me around the concourse, but I wasn't allowed to look inside the rink at what was happening in practice. And then they, I guess they gave me some people to talk to, but I was not allowed to put my eyes on the ice. And uh, there's a reason for that. And they were doing something they shouldn't be doing, but I won't get into that. But, but then, so there was sort of a, now I'm kind of annoyed, right? Because like, why would I not be allowed to practice? It's just complete uh, absence of protocol. That's not how these things work. You don't show up all year and then you're not allowed to show up for practice. So then in the second playoff game against Greenville, uh, Riley Gill gets hurt. And there's no feeling for how serious it is. He had finished the game, so it didn't seem like it was a major injury. But when I had asked for him to come to talk after the game, I was told he's not available to interview because he's hurt. And when I asked, well, what's the injury, they were very sort of smug and cute about it. They wouldn't say what it was. And it, it was an upper, upper body injury. And they kept saying he had the flu. And I was like, I know he doesn't have the flu. Can you just tell me, like, just tell me off the record what it is? or just give me an idea if you have any feel for how long he'll be out. And they just, they would not do any of that. And I don't know what it was like behind the scenes, but um, in his dealings with me, Larry was tight as a drum in that, those playoffs. Like he felt a tremendous pressure to win. He knew he had the team. And he, uh, three years earlier, they had come within one win of the Kelly Cup finals. And they would have been heavy favorites in the finals. So I think he felt like that was his Kelly Cup that he didn't get and slipped away, and this was his chance to make up for that and bring the championship to Reading. And I just think he felt like a tremendous pressure. So he was afraid to say anything that might get out publicly that might damage their chances of winning it. So it was a very uh, – it was a tense time in terms of the Royals' relationship with me for whatever reason. Additionally, that year, one of the more epic playoff series that may be forgotten along the way, the second round series uh, between the Royals and the Florida Everblades. What made that a classic series besides the fact it went seven games and the Royals ended up winning at home in the game seven? Well, that was the team that if anyone was going to beat the Royals, Florida was the one team that could do it. I think that was the general feeling at the time. And in the way the bracket set up, it was one through eight back then. 
and Florida was in the 4-5 series. So you knew if the Royals advanced, they were probably going to face Florida. And Florida was the defending champions. And Florida's just a natural powerhouse. They're great every year. And there was this feeling that they were the one team that could take this from the Royals. And the, the most important game of the playoff run, which may get lost to history, was game five against Florida down there in Estero, where the Royals scored the first two goals. They were up 2 nothing. It was a 2-2 series tie. And then Florida scored four consecutive goals. So the Royals were down 4-2 midway through the third period of game five. And they had a four-on-three power play. And Larry Corville pulled his goalie to play five-on-three with something like five and a half, six minutes left. And Evan Barlow scored a goal to cut it to 4-3. And then Nikita Kishirsky scored a goal with about two minutes left to tie it. And then Evan Barlow scored in overtime to win the game. So the Royals came home up 3-2 instead of down 3-2 because they scored three goals in the last, whatever, six minutes of regulation in overtime. And, I mean, that's to me, that's the greatest win in franchise history because if they don't win that game, I don't think they win the series. I don't know that they come back and win two in a row in Reading because they wound up losing game six before the epic game seven that everyone remembers. But to me, game five was probably the most important game in Royals playoff history. Royals go on and win in game seven. Ian O'Connor with the famous uh, pretending his stick was a shovel and sort of digging up the the grave of the Florida Everblades, which led to a 10-minute misconduct. Uh, you go back then, and or you go forward then into Cincinnati. Royals win that series in five games. Uh, Kirk McDonald scored a couple huge goals in that series for the Royals. Redding goes to Stockton, or beg your pardon, Redding goes on to face Stockton in the uh, Kelly Cup Finals. And game one with the Nikita Kaczynski goal uh, turns out to be the last playoff overtime goal in Royals history to this point, uh, which is somewhat rare and odd in all itself. But that game one and then game two were both spectacular games. What do you remember about covering those games for the team? Yeah, the, the atmosphere was electric. It was so loud in the building, and there had never been a feeling quite like that. And befitting because there had never been a Kelly Cup finals in Reading before. They played lousy in that game one. I don't know if if history has whitewashed that from the memory, but they were huge favorites. Stockton was not on the Royals level in terms of talent. They were something like the fourth or fifth seed out of the Western Conference, and the Royals had been looking at the top teams out West as the teams they would likely play, and Stockton had surprised everyone and gotten to the finals. And they played this sort of just loose and not focused game one, and they found a way to win anyway. They got this really fluky goal, where uh, I think it was Alex Berry he was trying to rim it around the boards and the goalie went behind the net to play the puck, but it hit someone's skate before it rimmed around the boards and it went right into the net. And it was like this gift goal. And then they, they won that game one in overtime. And they, But the thing about at that point in the season, it felt like it, it, there was an, an inevitability to them winning the championship. And they almost could turn it on to the level that they needed to play to win. And, it just felt like they were going to do whatever it took to win the game on that day, even if they didn't play their best. They were capable of flipping the switch on and off because they were that good. And and Stockton was sort of that much of a notch below them. So, where, you know, they got up 3-0 in that series and they lost game four. And then they, they just decided in game five, all right, we're going to end this thing. And they just blew their doors off. And And I think that was because at their best, I mean, Stockton just could not play with them. It was not 
an even matchup by any means. Did the game story of the Royals winning the Kelly Cup meet the uh, Reading Eagles deadline that night because uh, it happened after midnight Eastern? No, it did not. It, um, I didn't write that game story. And one of the reasons I didn't cover the Stockton portion of that series was that the game started so late and they ended after midnight. Our deadline would have been midnight and they maybe could have held till a little after midnight, but I don't think it did get in the next day's paper. I remember the Sunday after they won, I was sitting in my backyard doing interviews with people as they were uh, walking through the airports to fly back to Reading, like people like Riley Gill and Yannick Tifu, and, and they were telling me stories like uh, Riley Gill was walking through the some airport wherever they had a layover holding the uh, MVP trophy from <laughs> winning the, the uh, Kelly Cup playoffs. And, and I, that was the only, uh, the only stories that I wrote about them winning the championship were the traveling back home and sort of reflecting on its stories. But I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the next day's paper. I'd have to double check. So. It's actually funny you uh, mentioned that the airport interviews. So when the team got back to Philly, uh, Barry Schickling, who covers the ECHL for ECHL Week uh, on Twitter and social media and videos, uh, Barry, there's actually video of Barry doing interviews with Yannick Tifu, Riley Gill, and I believe Larry, uh, as they're walking through the, it's obviously, you know, when they are exiting the terminal, you couldn't just walk a camera like through security if you don't have a flight, but uh, they're doing it like right by what would you call the uh, uh, fast moving, you know, like if you're walking in an airport and then there's the fast moving, uh, like sort of conveyor belt things. I, I don't know if there's a better name for it uh, that sort of help move you. Uh, but Larry at one point walks by, I think Yannick doing an interview and he tries to like photobomb the interview as he's stepping on this fast moving walkway there. That's the right word, the fast moving walkway. And he's sort of like making a funny face in the background. So you weren't the only one covering the team, uh, from airports that day. Uh, I wanted to get your take on, uh, and I, we sort of were texting beforehand about, maybe what your all-time Royals team of your tenure would be, so the all-decade team, I should say. And um, I'll read it here for the fans because I have it copied, and then I maybe just have one or two questions about this. Uh, so in your 10 seasons covering the team since 2010-11, your forward group is very strong. Uh, Olivier LaBelle, Ryan Crothers, Yannick Tifu, Chris McCarthy, Benny, uh, Ben Gordon, Matt Willows, Chris Blight, Ethan Cox, Stan, uh, Stan Galiev, and Steven Swavely. Defensemen are Adam Comrie, Denny Urban, Nick Luco, Max LaMarche, Brett Fleming, and Bryant Molly with the goaltenders Grubauer and Scrivens. So I know that we talked about Scrivens earlier. I, how much of a difficult decision would it be if you were an actual general manager going back through these things in time to choose Scrivens over Riley Gill? Well, to me, it's more of a, the talent of the player at the time he was here for the goalies, you know, that's kind of how I looked at it. I mean, you think if you put Ben Scrivens on the 12, 13 Reading Royals, they might've been able to win the Kelly cup that year, right? Like he was a pretty good player. So I kind of picked him just to me. He's the other than Grubauer. Scrivens is the best goalie I've ever seen wear the Royals uniform. I didn't, I don't go back to Jonathan quick, so he doesn't fit my timeline, but 
that's why I picked him. I mean, obviously, if you're going to pick an all-decade team, people will pick Riley Gill because he won the whole thing, and he had a 950 save percentage during that time. It was just out of this world. It was, I mean, you could play that 100 times and not get a goalie performance of that caliber. Now, this is a uh, Pat Richards addendum to this because Pat and I were talking about how to uh, really put you on the spot and maybe bring up okay. some, uh, you know, you know, like uh, embrace debate type moments. But uh, you have to pick now one of these goalies, Grubauer or Scrivens. Which one would you pick to be your starting goalie? Scrivens. Uh, no, Grubauer. Grubauer. And I actually heard your, your conversation about that. And the one thing I would add is – Grubauer, when he played for the Royals, was a second-year pro. He had already played 40-some games in the ECHL. He had already outgrown this level. And the only reason he was here was because of the lockout, and he couldn't, you know, Hershey was filled. So the Royals kind of got him a year polished into his career. So to me, I think he was even better than some of these goalies. Like when Scriven started here, that was his first pro experience. He had never played anywhere. So I think that's kind of what separates Grubauer on the all-time list is he was a second-year guy. Of your uh, forward list, if you had to pick a – this is really getting into, uh, you know, self-quarantine, like coronavirus social distancing talk where you're looking for anything to talk about. But you have to pick three forwards of the ten. Who are you picking as your starting forward line? Let's pretend uh, centerman, you know, uh, centerman doesn't matter, you know, like just uh, any three of those forwards, the three, the three best, three favorite, however you want to look at it, forwards of that 10. I, I think that's, you have to go with the big three, right? The, whenever you make a list of Royals all time, whatever, it's always Crothers, Tifu, and LaBelle. So I think you have to pick those three. I don't know that those are the three most talented forwards to come through, through here, but they are the most accomplished with the franchise, with the Royals. And, you know, in terms of Crothers and Tifu, they're two of the greatest interviews to ever come through here. So I'll take them just so the post game will be interesting. But, yeah, I think so. When I pick these teams, I try to focus on, like, when you're trying to break ties, like, who's the guy that really made you say, wow, like, who did things that other players couldn't do? That's why I put someone like Stan Galyev on the team, even though he only played about 60 games with the Royals. He had some moments that were, like, he was just a – another level talent he was capable of a level of greatness that most echl players can't reach and as an observer that's the kind of thing that i want to see and i value is there anyone on this uh rendition of the royals the 2019-20 royals that it was just obvious at certain points that maybe five years down the line we might look back and say man that guy was you know not only too good at this league because of his stats, but just things that that player would do on a game-by-game basis? Well, it has to be Ustamenko, right? I mean, he's going to be – we haven't gotten the five-year window where we can look back and he's already in the NHL and playing at a high level where we can say, hey, that guy was here. And you get that feeling with some of the other great goalies. We haven't gotten to that point. We don't have the perspective yet. So – I feel like he, he kind of gets shortchanged a little bit because he hasn't had a chance to advance through his career yet. But, I mean, if he had stayed, if he had come back for playoffs and the Royals had put together a deep run or won the whole thing, I mean, he, you could make a case that he was the greatest goalie in franchise history because he's going to play in the NHL someday. I mean, he's, he's at the just the tip of the iceberg about what he's going to do. And, and the other thing is, obviously, what would Ralph Kudemi have done with 60 games, you know? That'll always be a what if. Like his his numbers were just insane. He could have put up forty goals 
he could have broken the single season record, but it, you know, he got, you know, he got the PTO and then he got hurt and we will never know the answer to that question. Yeah. And with Kademi too, he had more goals on like December 5th when, when he was called up, or I think it was December 8th or what was his last game against Brampton uh, before the series. That was a four game, like mini season series between the Royals and beast at that time. He got called up after the final road Brampton game too. Uh, again, to the Laval Rocket on a PTO. But he had more goals, the 21 goals he had, more than any other ECHL player on that day in the last 15 years. And the only reason I say 15 years is because the league stat only goes back 15 years, and the league was not able to determine when we were asking the question of them if you know they couldn't go back to December 5th of – 2000 or December 5th of 1994 basically in the 06 07 season was when it started so just to give a, a renewed appreciation for what Ralph Kademi did and what made him so uh, so darn special this season um, wanted to finish up with just a couple of uh, uh, other topics which is that this season's team for the Royals this past season and you know not only was the team very good but organizationally things seemed to really go right um, what did you think about the efforts of the, you know, Berks County Convention Center Authority this year and how it helped to sort of reinvigorate some of the vibe that maybe had been lost in the previous two or three years? Well, I thought it was great. You guys boosted attendance by several hundred in terms of the listed attendance per game. I think uh, David Farrar said it was uh, something like 20,000 more fans came through the gates and had come through at that point in the previous season. And those numbers may not sound like overwhelming, but when you put them into the landscape where minor league sports in general, people, you know, teams are not adding attendance. Like everyone's just trying to maintain or avoid drop-offs. And you guys were going in the opposite direction in your 19th season as a franchise heading into the 20th anniversary year where it's harder and harder to make things new and different and, and novel. And you know, there was a lot of concern during the Jack Gulati years, there was always sort of this talk about like, how long are the Royals going to be around? We're not going to have a team forever, but I didn't hear any of that this year. I felt it was much more of a renewed feeling of, Oh, this is our team. You know, they're back. The crowds are into it. It's exciting to be at the rink. And part of it is they were great at home. So, I mean, they were seeing a lot of wins and then part of it is just all of the behind the scenes work that you guys did, all the little additions that you made, you know, the, the morning game and, you know, all of the other things that you did to sort of boost those rough nights when you can't get good crowds in the ECHL. And, and you missed, you know, your, one of your biggest weekends, obviously, of the year, which was St. Patrick's Day weekend, and so it could have even been better. You've covered a lot of different sports, uh, been in a lot of different arenas or venues, but what exactly is the importance that you've come to discover about what the Royals are to – Berks County in the community? It's their the hardcore fan base for the Royals is just different than minor league teams typically have. I cover the Reading Fighting Phils, not full time, but enough. I cover the Lancaster Barnstormers, who were an Atlantic League team, which is kind of baseball's equivalent of the ECHL, where a lot of the players are independent, they're not part of an affiliation. And just the degree to which fans care about the results and the wins and losses is different. I mean, I covered the Fighting Phils got to the 
decisive game five of the 2015 playoffs and they lost and, you know, people were disappointed, but they didn't even play their best players in that game because they're trying to protect guys for their future in major league baseball. If the Royals had lost game seven of the Kelly cup, it would be just a crushing blow for the 1500, 2000 people who are diehard fans. And that's what's different is the results are important. That's why fans boo when things are going lousy. You know, that's why, you know, they complain sometimes because they care so much about whether or not the Royals are successful. And that's different. That's not like that in minor league sports in most places. Even when I had the opportunity to work in minor league baseball, how often do you hear a a, a couple dozen fans maybe boo if a if the relief pitcher that's in because the starter didn't do well. If the relief pitcher gives up a double on, you know, his his first pitch thrown, there's no such thing as that that person being booed. It's just everybody goes back to doing whatever the heck they were doing or say, oh, you know, get him next time. There, there's not the – you're right about that. There's not sort of the vocal fan base that maybe goes along with other sports, and certainly we hope that uh, the parents that are at the high school games aren't doing that <laughs> when you're covering that. But uh, you walk into a game – and from my perspective as the broadcaster, the excitement of a crowd of 6,000 is not only because I know the front office has done really well, but I know that when I put the headset on that there's going to be a different type of atmosphere that I'm hearing through the headset. And it, it, you know, it invigorates you and it makes you really excited to call the game going into it. And there's just sort of a, a really good feeling when you walk into the booth that night, even though you might have the worst broadcast of your life or the team might win or lose eight, nothing. But what is it like from a newspaper reporter when you're going to objectively cover a team, but you see that there's five, six, seven, 7,000 people at a game at Santander arena. Oh, it matters for sure. It feels more important. You go in there. I mean, the, the dreariest games are Sunday, um, you know, October or, or November, whatever. Like the, N- the NFL is playing a full slate of games, and there's like 1,800 people there because hockey hasn't quite geared up because the attendance tends to pick up after Christmas. And that's the one where you sit there and you think to yourself, like, I have to come up with a way to make this feel interesting or exciting. And that that's when it's kind of a drag. But when you're there – and it's pink in the rink or there's 5,500 people there and it's loud. Like it makes everything better. It makes it faster. It makes it more emotional. And all of those things make the story more interesting. And I also think hockey, the thing about hockey is it requires a physical commitment to win. Like you have to give up your body. You have to play hard. And if you don't, you're going to lose. And I think that's part of the reason why the results for minor league hockey are more important to the fans than the results for minor league baseball is you got to sell out. you got to really want it or you're not going to win. When you're walking back after one of those big games and said we would return to it and you're putting together the story in your mind uh, and it was a big win or maybe a tough loss, how are you parsing through everything that you were able to hear from your postgame interviews uh, as well as sort of mixing that with the result on the ice at the same time. Yeah, it either it either comes to you or it doesn't. And I remember the one of my the worst stories I ever wrote about the Royals was that game seven when they beat Florida. And I don't even remember exactly what I wrote. I just remember thinking it was terrible. And I don't know if I've ever read it again. 
And you would think, you know, that was such a dramatic game, and they had that silly thing where Riley Gill had the too much curve in his stick, and Florida got a five-on-three power play. And for whatever reason, I couldn't pull it together, and I didn't write a very good story about that. I talked to Kirk McDonald after that game because he was a player, and um, and he he told me something about watching the family feud that day and how he was doing anything he could to keep his mind off of Game Seven because he didn't want to stress about it. But it didn't come together. But one of my favorite Royal stories that I ever wrote was when they got swept by Manchester two years ago and just the sort of how how they just felt like they couldn't, no matter what happened, they weren't going to get the one break they needed to get the goal that they needed to win the game. And remember, they got a, a five on three late in that game. They were down one nothing forever. And they got a five on three in that game four. And, and all of a sudden the whole arena perked up and it's like, well, maybe we'll score here. Maybe we can tie this thing. And then the puck bounced across the crease and Willows had a chance to put it in and it skipped over his stick. And it was almost like this huge lift up, like they're going to do it. They're going to rally. And then this huge, like all the air came out of the building and then the season was over. And to me, that became, that was much easier to write than the game seven win over Florida for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just, you know, it connects in your brain or it doesn't. Yeah, even I remember the story that you did, which I thought was really good. Uh, you might remember that game, not this past season, but in 1819, where nothing was going right for the Royals and Brampton scored the goal that hit off the post and or oh. double, double doinked or whatever out. And that was one of the most painful moments of the season and there's even the perspective three months later two months later that the Royals would have maybe made the playoffs by a point instead of missing it by a point but excluding that fact I thought the way that you were able to piece together not only that moment but the frustration that goes along with it and sort of how it encapsulate, encapsulates the, the course of an ECHL season made it even more of a, a job well done by you. I'm not trying to focus on all these negative moments here, but that sort of just you know brought that one back to mind when you talked about Manchester and maybe another disappointing what-could-have-been moment with the perspective of time. Yeah, the hard ones to write are when an official's call or a mistake affects the outcome, and that's especially true in high school. Because even if they – like no matter what you think of these referees or these umpires, they're not trying to make a mistake. Like they're trying to do their best and, and they're not, I mean, they're just like minor league players. They're not as good as the NHL players. So you try not to harp on it too much, but you also have to convey that this particular decision affected the outcome of the game. So you kind of walk that tightrope. Let's finish up with uh, one or two uh, so social distancing questions. So how are you, uh, what are you doing to social distance here? What what TV shows, what, you know, what extra food are you eating like us all to gain the uh, quarantine 15? What's the what's the deal over there in Lancaster? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I've been home for two weeks now. So it feels like about 100 years at this point. And I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 4-year-old who are not going to school right now. So it is a challenge. They are starting to bounce off the walls a little bit, and there's no end in sight. And it, it's just hard because they're not getting any stimulation. They're not interacting with other kids. And, and then also I'm trying to work. So, you know, you're, trying, you're sitting in your house and you're trying to write a story, and, like, the kid's coming in to tell you a question or, he's, you know, comes or they're fighting with each other because they're sick of each other. And 
it has been a grind. I think a lot of parents are in my boat because people are working from home right now. That's been the hardest part. And like, you just got to try to like get some exercise and get your blood flowing a little bit. So your brain doesn't stop working. You know, that's been the hardest part. Any, are you watching the show, the tiger King on Netflix that everyone's watching with the, the man that, um, yeah. What's, what's the deal with that? I have not watched that. I, I, you know, that guy who you hang out with, who you can't believe he hasn't seen a particular movie, right? You're always like, I'm that, that guy. guy, except for every movie. Like, I mean, I've never seen an Avengers movie. I've never seen an Indiana Jones movie. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't have the pop culture uh, strand in my DNA, I guess. But I keep seeing on Twitter people referencing the Tiger King, and I'm, I'm getting perilously close to having to investigate what that's all about. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have not watched it yet. Um, I hope by the time the podcast goes out, I, I probably still will uh, hopefully not have uh, not have watched it. But so then I'll ask I'll ask this. So what are you what are you watching or following or doing besides just scrolling through Twitter like 95 percent of us media folks do all day? I, I what I do. Well, I have my kids all day. So what I do is I try to do a couple interviews during the day and I write after they go to sleep. So when they go to sleep around nine o'clock, I usually write from about nine to midnight if I can, because that's the only way I have uninterrupted time. I don't know that I, I haven't, I didn't, can't remember the last time I turned on the TV. I don't know. I'm not really watching much of anything. I, I don't, there's no sports, so I don't really have any reason to sort of surf around, you know, to see what game's going on. So I haven't, uh, I haven't watched much of anything. I've just been reading all these articles and following graphics and stuff about how people are traveling less. It actually intrigues me a lot not to talk too much about it, but the New York Times had a graphic of, you know, uh, not only road traffic and how much it's gone down in this area of the country, but I'm just dialed in from a media perspective on uh, obviously this might it's so terrible what's going on, but just how this might never happen again for either one of our lives. But I didn't really want to end on that note, but. Uh, I'll ask one more just sort of fun one, and then we'll wrap it up here. been chatting for about an hour or so. Uh, you have to pick one promotion for the Royals that you've seen the team do, or just minor league hockey in general, maybe minor league sports, I'll expand it, that you've been like, that's awesome. Whatever it was that happened at the arena or an event you were covering or you saw, and you're like, that's that's great. What What comes to your mind? You mean like could it is it something that the fans interact with or is it a giveaway? I mean for the Royals it's the the jerseys, right? It's all the the different jersey promotions that you've come up with and the you know, the way they've sort of taken off with the fans, that's always one that I look at and go, Wow, that's a I would have never thought of that or I would have never, you know, even considered that people would be into that sort of thing. To yep. me that's where you guys are sort of a you know a notch above, like with the ugly sweater promotion. I think that was the first one that I looked at and said, you know, that's such a brilliantly simple idea, right? Everyone wears an ugly sweater at Christmas, hockey jerseys or sweaters. Why wasn't everyone doing this 25 years ago? And then when I saw it, that seemed like one of those real ingenious creations. Jason, this has been a a fun hour or so. Um, I know that, you know, taking care of kids and everything, and sometimes there's less time in the day than, uh, Maybe we each think we have, but um, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope the 20th anniversary season gets off without any hitches and everybody stays well and safe out there. And uh, we appreciate you hopping on for one of our first episodes here. 
I appreciate you having me, and I will be tuning in to see who else, the other guests that you have going forward.